Well, dear friends, we're going to be looking at Luke 11, verses 37 through 44, and this is a passage that is known as the, the three woes to the Pharisees. Christ is going to interact with something in particular within the uh, Pharisaic tradition that they hold to, which we will find once again that Jesus does not participate in, and it's astonishing to the Pharisees. And He's going to use this to bring three specific woes to them that have their root in their offense, that He's not following their doctrine in this respect. So, let's look at that passage, Luke, 37, uh, Luke 11, 37 through 44. And it says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked Him to dine with Him. So, He went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that He did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give also alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. This is one of the four conflicts that you have within the Gospel of Luke um, that Jesus has with Pharisees during a meal. It's a common theme that you see within the Lucan gospel. It is uh, reoccurring where Jesus is a guest um, in dining with someone, and they are offended in some way because He's not following their particular regulations that they have in their Pharisaic tradition. There's four things I want us to pull out of this. The first is more introductory, and we'll spend a bit of time on it, but that is the irony of washing the hands and not the heart. The irony of washing the hands and not the heart. And we'll see that there is a tradition that the Pharisees followed that they expected others to follow. And certainly, if Jesus is a great rabbi, if Jesus were to be the Messiah, He would most definitely follow their traditions, they believe. And out of that, Jesus responds to them, knowing their offense at what He, what he does not do. And He brings to them three woes. The first woe is the neglect of justice and love. They tithe in all these little ways that weren't even required under the law, but yet they neglected these weightier issues, meaning they were neglecting not the ceremonial law, but rather the moral law, which required justice and love. Thirdly, we see the second woe, and it's that of self-importance, that they had attained a status amongst the people that was of a high standing, of a high respect. They were people that uh, the common man would go to and look to for guidance in religion, guidance in holiness, how to follow the law of God. And this self-importance um, became an idol for them. Thirdly, or rather fourthly, we see the third woe, which is that they are like unmarked graves. And this is particularly dangerous because they don't appear to be such. They don't appear to be full of death spiritually Instead, they appear to be wise teachers. They appear to be holy men that are guiding people, but yet they are unmarked graves. They are, in fact, those that make people unclean, those that lead people to death 
and destruction. So let's look at this first point here, this aspect of not washing hands. And we see this offense in how it is unpacked here in Luke 11, beginning in verse 37. It says this, it says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at a table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. This is a practice that we don't have um, in the Old Testament as it is required for all people. But we see within the Pharisaic tradition, within the rabbinic tradition, this idea of washing before a meal. And this is a ceremonial washing. Basically, it would be about, about as much water as you would fit in one and a half eggs, and you would place it over your hands in this ceremonial uh, cleansing. And you, I want you to see how serious they took this particular um, practice. A later rabbinic tradition compares eating without washed hands to being with a harlot. That's a really incredible perspective. But you can see their astonishment here. Just the, the shock. How is it that he could eat without washing his hands? In uh, Numbers Rabbah 20 verse 21, this is a, again another rabbinic tradition. This is, uh, this is a statement that is made. This is a rabbi saying, this is, when I saw that you ate without washing your hands and without saying a blessing, I thought you were an idolater. Seeing someone not do this particular practice that had been put forward and was within the tradition of the Pharisees was highly offensive. It was highly shocking. Now, you don't find this practice in the Old Testament with the exception of the priests. So stay with me as we walk through this so you can kind of see um, how this practice began. Um, because here's, here's what I want us not to do. I don't want us just to see, okay, these are the, the mean, evil, nasty Pharisees, and they had these mean rules, and they're trying to put them on everyone. I want you to see, rather, that how the Pharisees came to these ideas and began to practice them made some theological sense. That there was some reasonableness to these things. They had some verses that they would use to support them. They had some systematic theology that made sense in these areas. And maybe it was even a decent way to practice and live in certain ways. Maybe some of the rules that they gave made sense. But the heart from which they were coming and the ways in which they put their tradition uh, in contrast to the law of God, the moral law, and it began to contradict it, that's where they began to fail. That's where they began to fall. And I think you will find a passage like this to be a bit closer to home if we go through this through the right doorway. Only priests were required to wash their hands in the Old Testament uh, before eating. Exodus 30, 19 through 21, um, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and his offspring throughout their generation. This is kind of where they're getting this idea from. Now, there's no one's washing their feet as from what we can see here, but this idea of washing their hands comes from this idea that the priests were 
washing their, their hands. Um, so how did they come to this perspective? How is it that you had this requirement in Exodus of the priest, and now you have the Pharisees requiring this of Jesus and others that they would deem to be righteous people to be practicing this? So this goes back to the time of the exile. During the time of the exile, they were outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel. They didn't have the temple whereby uh, they could practice their religion. And they began to ask themselves, how is it that we serve God during these times? These Pharisees, these ones that became Pharisees, they were in many ways similar to, to Puritans. They were similar to those that were trying to see, how do I apply the Word of God to every area of my life? How do I apply every single nuance in detail in such a way? And they're trying to say, how do we live and worship God and serve God rightly as we're over here and we are in exile? And they began to consider the Word of God, and they began to think about the ways in which um, how you care for your body and you look after your body is similar to the way in which the priest should care for the articles within the the temple and this idea of um, the body being the temple of God. This uh, was something that began to be worked through in the theology during this time. We see that theology manifest itself in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Again, he's applying this. Now, Paul's not applying this in regard to not washing your hands, all right? He's applying this to um, living in a way uh, morally, sexually. But he is, this is an idea that is here. This is the idea that you, you are, you're, you are the Spirit of God has filled you, and so you should live as though you are sanctified, distinct, all right? You should live as one who is is holy. And so they came to this idea in a way that, that wasn't entirely wrong. But they began to think through the logical outworkings of some of these theologies that you see even flowing through the Old Testament. And they, they, weren't, they weren't completely unreasonable. I want you to hold on to this idea that some of the things that they're teaching, they're, they're not completely out there. They're not completely crazy. It's the heart from which these things are coming that leads to this great idolatry. Another idea is this idea of the priesthood of the believer. This idea that as they were out there, they began to ask these questions like, well, you know, are we not all to be serving God? Are we not all to live as holy people? We see the Lord tell them in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, that they are to be a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, ultimately, this is pointing forward to what the church is going to be, what God is going to establish in the church, that you will have a priesthood of believers, that you will have all of the people in the church who know God, all the people in the universal church, all those that are converted and saved by grace and through faith. So even this idea of this priesthood of believers or that all of us are a priest in some way, you don't want to run off with this too far, this idea that, that, that what you do in your life is really significant and matters. This is what they were trying to ponder, so that they're trying to think through. See this idea taught in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The same words that you see in Exodus 19, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his 
marvelous light. Again, we see this echoed in Revelation 1, 5, and 6. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you kind of see how they could come to this idea. Well, this is what the priest did. This is how they treated these instruments that were within the temple. This is how the, the priests would treat their own hands. How much should we not also? Should we not also see the ceremonial clean, cleansing that we need within our, our lives? The fact is, everyone wants to make the Pharisee someone else. If I could get you to pay attention here, so what I want you to see, everyone wants to make the Pharisee out to be someone else. They want the Pharisee to be this other religious guy out here, or they want him to be this religious guy that just has too much rules, or he has these rules in particular that, that you don't like, and so that guy over there is the, the Pharisee. But here's what I want you to see. That's the pharisaical mindset. That's exactly what the Pharisee does. The Pharisee sees the person that is the problem as this guy over here. And so, as a passage like this and others like it, we need to analyze this and think through it because we are all natural-born idolaters. That's our default position. That's how we come into this world. And so we need to be mindful of these, these areas and the ways in which we may even have things that are good ideas to us or things that make sense or the things that you've even used Bible verses to support what you're doing here, but it may not be something that you can hold someone else to, even though it may be wise, even though it may be a good idea. It's not something you're supposed to be cloning and making other people exactly like yourself. It may even be something that people come over to your house and they're like, that's a good idea. I never thought of that before. There's some of you I've been to your house and I've been like, that's a brilliant idea. I never thought of doing that and educating my children. Or that's a great idea. That, that what you just did there and building that, that, that's fantastic. I never thought of that. It's such a great idea. So we can have great ideas that we learn from one another, but we, we must just be mindful, though, in the ways in which we take even our own traditions or ideas, and we begin to project and require those of someone else. And if it's not actually required within the law of God, we begin to cross those lines. You know, there was a, there was a time a while back I was at a, uh, it's called Breakfast and Bullets, just a fantastic event. Doesn't that just sound fun, gentlemen? Breakfast and Bullets. And so this you weren't eating bullets. You, you, we had a, uh, just this beautiful campfire meal, fresh-made biscuits. Have you ever had fresh-made biscuits um, made over a campfire? Just this delicious smokiness in a biscuit with the gravy. Just very manly environment. And so we're eating this. Houston and I are, are out here, and th th what they do is then this church that did this, they would, everyone would bring their guns, and they were very safe in how they did it. They had a way of laying them out, kept them unloaded, and then you'd go up and You'd get to shoot, shoot guns. You'd even get to exchange. You'd try different people's guns and uh, shoot different guns. It was, it was a lot of fun. And there was a, one brother that was there that um, in Houston was there, and he was going to go and shoot a BB gun. And so I was kind of looking at where he was going, okay, go here. It's my son. I need to watch what he's doing, but he's going to shoot a BB gun. He's going to enjoy it. And I had a brother come to me and say, oh, well, so uh, what's your, what's your, what is your, plan. Almost, it was like, I don't fit the word to use. It was almost like, what's your long-term plan for your, your son in, in shooting guns? And I was like, you know, I, I don't think I've, I have one. I, um, right now, he's going to shoot a BB gun. We shot one before. He's like, oh, well, l let me tell you. And he began to walk through with me uh, this tradition that he has, this way of 
bringing his son up in a way uh, to avoid uh, having any accidents with firearms. And it began with like, I don't know, it was like it began with a knife, but the knife was like a popsicle stick, and he had to do that right and move up to a knife. And then he had a play gun that he walked up. He had this whole tradition all the way up to the where he was shooting a shotgun. I don't know, at age like 15 or something like that. And he had walked through the very detailed. The man was an engineer, so he was very specific. You can see how his engineering is playing itself out in, in his life. And that's true that sometimes our personalities will influence how it is that we begin to live our lives and, and apply things. And we can be shocked when someone else doesn't have the same mindset. Well, they're made different. They have a different personality. They have a different upbringing than maybe did. And he was, I kind of heard, I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Well, we're going to go shoot this. You go, well, you don't think that maybe you should go through some of these? So I was like, I've never even heard this before. I've never even heard this idea. He was shocked that I was just going to let him shoot a gun. My perspective is, hey, I'm going to stand behind you. You're going to point the gun over there. You're going to pull the trigger. I'm going to make sure you don't point the gun at, at anyone else. And there's other areas of life where we can have particularities that make a lot of sense. I mean, the man's view on shooting the gun, it made logical sense. Maybe there's some Bible verses he could use to support this. There's areas of child rearing that you can find that maybe, you know, it can have certain ways of doing things or perspectives or even cultural, subcultural influences, aspects of uh, courtship that may even fall into those as well that may have a, you know, some great wisdom behind it, whereby I may be able to say, you know, that's a good idea. I think I may take in some of that. I may listen to some of these ideas, but some of these areas, we, we must understand that our application of some of these truths ways in which we, we read the law, we read the Scriptures, we understand these things, and we begin to apply them, they're not always the same as, um, the, you know, how it is it's working out in your particular family, your particular life. It may not be the same thing with, with, with everyone. And so, um, that's an idea that, that you need to, we need to keep in mind and keep that understanding. But on the other end, there's another aspect that I want you to think about. I want you to consider this idea because we have what I see to be a very interesting contrast that is here, where Jesus offends the Pharisees by not participating in their traditions, their activities that they held to. But yet we will have Paul on things that I think are maybe a little more serious, maybe a little more invasive um, than, than just not washing their hands, where Paul will go forward and, and follow these activities for the sake of the gospel. And then we will have other times where Paul absolutely is not okay with how people are following out certain traditions. Let's look at a couple of these. Um, Jesus could have freely washed his hands here. He was free to do that. There was no requirement that Jesus not wash his hands. Jesus intentionally did not follow their tradition because he was using it as a purpose to teach, as a purpose to instruct as a purpose, honestly, to call them out in these specific ways, to point out the fact that you are offended, that I am not doing this, is demonstrating where your heart is. Um, for the purpose of the gospel, though, there's times where you may be in certain areas or around certain people that you won't do certain things, that you have rights as Christians to do. And this is one that I find to be one of the more fascinating ones within the Scriptures, and that is that that Paul had Timothy circumcised for the purpose of sharing the gospel, Acts 16 and verse 3. The adult man, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was 
a Greek. Paul deemed that it was best for him to go through with this particular Jewish practice because it would be best for the sharing of the gospel during this time. It seems like it seems like almost an odd practice, but there's times where you may do certain things. You may not do certain things for the purpose of the gospel. If you are inviting a Muslim neighbor over and you are going to eat with them, that would not be the best time to serve bacon. You have a right as a Christian to eat bacon. You could share with them the verses that say that you have liberty to eat whatever it is that you want. But for the purpose of the gospel, wisdom would say, this, let this not be a distraction here. But I want you to see this as well, that, that you have Peter and Barnabas applying a particular practice not to offend certain people, and it is offensive to Paul. And we see that in Galatians 2, 11 through 14. It's almost a, a shocking uh, portion of Scripture in which you have an apostle calling out another apostle. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14, but when Cephas, now that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because, and this is kind of like this is a public uh, opposition that he has, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? And you have this, this situation that occurs, and there's a tension that is there in the first century church between Jews and Gentiles, because you had Jews that lived in certain ways, but they were Christians now, and there's Gentiles being brought in, and they are not to force these requirements on these Gentiles. And you have the separation of eating between Jews and Gentiles because, well, they were eating different things and they were doing different things. Maybe they were washing their hands in certain ways. Maybe that's even something that was, that was going on here. And you have Paul calling them out. Peter, out of fear and out of concern, did not want to offend fellow Jews, and so he separated himself from these Gentiles, and Paul calls them out because this is an issue. This is an issue of the gospel. This is an issue that it is showing a division in the church that does not actually occur. And these are difficulties that we, we have to think through as Christians. There's difficulties that are there in thinking, what can I do and what can I not do? What liberty do I have? First century church, you had the issue of eating in, uh, not eating in, but rather eating meat that came from, from temples. Eating in a temple may even be an issue. Maybe for some reason you happened to be there and there was food that you needed to eat. That may have been an issue for someone, someone as well. Certainly Paul condemns the participating directly in the practices that are there, but he gives liberty for those that would eat of the meat or not eat of the meat that came from the, the temples. And so thinking through these things was something they had to consider. Someone just buying the meat, taking it home and eating it was not wrong. But to be mindful of how it is that this is affecting someone else. If you have someone who invites you over to eat, they're like, well, this is, this is Zeus steak. And this is going to, by eating this, this is really going to help you uh, perform better at your job. Or you're going to be more successful. This, I'm not just making that up. That's actually how they viewed 
these, the meat that came from these various temples, that it had some kind of power to, you know, um, give you certain abilities or to bless you in certain ways in your lives. And that's how it is that they had ordered their lives and, and what they eat and where this meat came from. Paul says, look, these, are, these gods don't exist. And in another place he says, you know, these are, they're worshiping demons. And you have that tension that is there. And so you're thinking how it is what I'm doing affects other people. That's, that's the key that we need to come down on. Very recently, this came out, right? Just this last week, there was, um, there was a brother who's been faithful for many years in many different ways, and he began to, to give the recommendation that it was acceptable to attend a homosexual wedding and to participate in that. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it because people are already making a big deal out of this all over the internet, so it won't take you long to figure out who this is. Um, but the reality is, is that the question then has to be asked, well, what am I doing when I'm attending this? What am I participating in? How am I supporting this and, and celebrating this particular behavior? And there is a tension that is here, and there's a tension that, I was, that is here that I would say, no, absolutely not. That's not reasonable. That's not um, an effective way of sharing the gospel with someone else to go into participate in, in something like this. But the key that you need to see in where it is that I, I need to apply this particular rule to someone else or not is going to come down to what's required in the law of God. And how it is it works out in your own life, you may need to say, okay, well, maybe this makes a lot of sense here. Maybe what someone's doing here isn't even the best choice, but I can't necessarily project what I'm doing onto them. But then over here, in regard to my participation in some of these activities, I have to ask the question, um, is this a gospel issue? Am I compromising the gospel in some way in, in participating in this? That's the question that has to be asked, and that's why you see this distinction that is there with how Paul at certain points will uh, uh, even pay for other people to go through certain rites and rituals that weren't required and participate in them himself for the purpose of the gospel, to have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. There may be all kinds of things that you do. Some of you uh, are reaching out to Muslims within this city, and there's ways in which you have ordered your life so that you can best share the gospel with someone like that. But when you begin to cross the line and what you're doing begins to contradict the gospel, not just giving up your liberty in some way, but in some way compromising the gospel itself, that's where you have to draw the line. And that's what Jesus does here. He draws the line here because they had elevated this behavior, this washing of hands, baptism is actually the word that's used here, um, to that of um, actually being cleansed, actually being, being made clean, being made pure. Um, and when we see this idea of clean, this isn't the idea of clean like I'm washing dirt off my hands. This is rather a ritual, ceremonial uh, cleansing. And Jesus is using a play on words here for the ceremonial cleansing of the outside of the person but neglecting the inside of the person. And I want you to think of the absurdity of such a behavior to put such priority and emphasis on the cleansing of that which is outside and yet neglecting that which is inside. Imagine that um, in a real sense. Imagine that in your kitchen, that, that, that the inside of a, a cup or a dish was, was filthy, it was disgusting, or there was rotten food in it, but you began to scrub and to clean the outside. You began to really pick and get into the details, every little aspect of the outside of that dish. How, how absurd would that be? 
How that just seems to make no sense at all. And that's the comparison that he is giving here. That is the Pharisees that are here. They have this tradition that they've put forward that emphasizes the ceremonial cleansing, but they have neglected the inside. They have not seen their sin. They have not had a hatred of it. And they've not turned to Christ for salvation. They have seen what they're doing on the outside as sufficient. That's legalism. That is idolatry. Idolatry is dealing with the outside and not the, the inside. And for them, the inside needs to be dealt with. So it's from this that Jesus goes forward and gives these three woes. Um, the first is the woe of the neglect of justice and love. We see that in verse 42 of Luke 11. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. The, the theme of each of these woes is a neglecting of what is inside and an emphasis of what is outside. It's not that the outside doesn't matter. The outside absolutely does matter. What you do does matter. But the outside is affected by the inside. That is the work that God does in the life of a Christian. He brings them to life. He gives them a new heart so that the actions that flow out of that heart will be that which is righteous because it's not just what you do, it's the heart from which those actions come. We gave this illustration in the 1689 class. Imagine you gave someone $300 and they you could say, well, that's a nice, it's a good thing. It's a nice thing to give someone $300. But then imagine it came out later, you were trying to bribe that person. You were trying to influence their decision in such a way to do something immoral. Well, now that same action of giving someone money is now an immoral action. The action didn't change. You're giving someone the money, but rather the heart that influenced that action affected that action. That's why the inside of the person needs to be changed, whereby what flows out from them can be that which is good. Um, and so within this, to understand this within its context, this is the idea of a person who is going out of their way to tithe on things that aren't even required within the law. This is people going out and, and gathering some herbs. You send your kid out, hey, go gather me some herbs, and they bring in some herbs, and you go and you, you know, imagine that. Sometimes I'll send a kid out, hey, go get some rosemary, and they pop some rosemary off and I chop it. Imagine if I started like counting all the little needles of rosemary and, and separating a, a tithe from them. And then I'm going to go and, and, and bring that forward, right? Yeah, this, this Pharisee is going to have a, a cup of mint tea, right? He goes and gathers a little bit. Oh, let me count all the leaves and let me bring one-tenth. And so then he's going to go and bring this almost absurd offering, just this almost, uh, it's almost ridiculous what he's bringing, this little, like, like what are they even going to do with that? Like maybe when you have 10 cups of tea, one of the priests might actually be able to have one himself. I mean, it's almost in the way what you're doing. It's, it's something that is, uh, you know, very, very much emphasizing you and your religion and yourself. And that's, that's the caution that is here is when your religion begins to be this thing that is the showmanship. This emphasis where you are what is central. Imagine you eat lunch at someone's house and they, they send you home with the leftovers. Then it's like, well, let me tie the portion of that as though that's what was required. Okay, here's a couple little pieces of food so that I can make sure that I check off this just this meticulous exaggeration which focuses upon not the command from God, but rather this logical outworking of the command. And it brings great, great attention to to the giver. We must be cautious of 
of such showmanship, such emphasis, even things that, that are good that you may do. You can begin to do it in a way that is the showy, that is the emphasis is on you and not upon the one to whom you should be glorifying, the one to whom you should be, should be pointing. And yet, there was this, this meticulous emphasis on these herbs and these details, but yet overwhelmingly neglecting love, neglecting justice. Sproul says this, the first woe is because the Pharisees majored in minors. They paid their tithes to the last detail, but passed over judgment and love. Jesus emphasizes this idea of missing the weightier matters in the sister passage in Matthew 23, 23. What do you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. All of the law in the Old Testament is not equal. Some law is greater than other laws. And that's what he means here. You see, it's emphasized by the Lord in certain places in the Old Testament as well. You've neglected the greater law, where they emphasize the ceremonial law, but neglected the moral law. The moral law is weightier. The moral law is more significant. They're not in contrast to one another, but the moral law is that which is of, of greater value, of greater importance. First, we see that it transcends to all people and all times. The ceremonial law does not transcend to all people at all times. It was for a particular people at a particular time. But we see these weightier matters emphasized in Leviticus 19, 18, you shall not take revenge or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And again, Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And that is the, the emphasis that is there is that they were neglecting these greater laws, the moral law, to honestly not even follow the ceremonial law. They were, it was a logical outworking of their, the ceremonial law. It was something that they came to a conclusion of that they were free to do, but it showed a, a, a great lack of understanding. It showed a deadness in their heart that they would emphasize these particular details but neglect these greater, weightier matters. The second woe that we see is that of self-importance self-importance, the heart from which these actions came that were demonstrating themselves in the fact that they were offended that Jesus did not wash his hands before he ate, was focused on their own self-importance as well. We see that in verse 43 of Luke 11. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. R.C. Sproul gives us a little um, picture here of what the synagogues look like. Sproul says this, the synagogue was arranged so that there was a semicircle table at the front, um, which the dignitaries among the religious leaders were seated, and they were given due respect and honor by the people. However, many, many teachers were more interested in the honor than being honorable. They were less concerned about advancing the kingdom of God than advancing their own place in the synagogue. That is a danger for anyone anywhere at any time that you can begin to mistake your kingdom for God's kingdom. And in fact, people will begin to call their kingdom God's kingdom and, and misplace these ideas and begin to misapply verses and, and ideas. And it is the reality of an idol that is there for anyone that would um, emphasize their own prominence or their own um, self-importance. Now, this is just having the semicircle wasn't in and of itself wrong. The fact that they were sitting in such a way isn't necessarily wrong. Some churches will have 
uh, you know, such a layout. I joke with Aaron sometimes that we should put a couple deacons up here and, and put him up here. And there's churches where I've been to where you have the uh, other officers of the church sitting uh, behind. Now, the, I wouldn't like that because I'm basically on stage the whole time and having to be mindful of whatever I'm doing the whole time. And I, I won't be mindful the whole time when I'm sitting up here. I know that. Um, and I don't see a reason to do that. But, you know, that's something that, that is there. And so such an arrangement isn't necessarily wrong, but they began to, to covet these ideas. Actually, the church that I went to that did that, I won't say the name, um, had an offering. This is a very different offering experience. Um, and so it was time for the offering. They began to play the organ and very peppy music. And to my surprise, everyone began to get up out of the seats and they began to go to the front of the room and they began to circle all the way around and there was a basket in the front um, and people were dancing and it was just this, it was a big fun show. They had, they had a lot of fun um, going around and uh, even one of the, the deacons made a special he took a $20 bill, and he was making sure everyone knew that he was putting a $20 bill in the basket, and everyone could, could see it. And we got to the end of that offering. The pastor said, we didn't have enough money yet, and he called another offering, and they ran around and played the music again. Everyone danced, put some more money in there, and uh, got, got again, sang another song. And then he said, hey, we got an electric bill, and so uh, we're going to keep doing this until we can pay this electric bill. And he went back around again. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't think that would fly so well over here if I uh, began to tell you, look, I really need to uh, replace some of these cameras, guys. We're going to keep doing this until, uh, until you get it. But there was, there was kind of a, there was a, there was a showmanship that was there that, that is, uh, that we, maybe we've gone to the other extreme of that. We've got a box in the back of the room and you can go do what you're going to do. And I don't really know what you're doing when you put money in that box. Um, but you know, this, this, is, this is an issue here for the Pharisees and the prominence and having their high standing in the culture. And it's, that's interesting because you need to understand the Pharisees were not like the Sadducees. They were not these aristocrats. They weren't the ones that came from this lineage. Um, they weren't the ones that, that were necessarily, some of them were wealthy at this point, but originally they weren't. They were the common man's theologian. They were the ones that saw idolatry in the leadership and began to say, how can we follow God in every area of our life? How can we be diligent in every area of life? And they began to try to, try to, try to work some of, some of this out. And so they were, like I said, lay people, common people originally. Um, like Puritans is an example I, I would like to give. Some of the Puritans began to get into some of these pharisaical tendencies. Um, you have some bad theology that comes out. Richard Baxter is, is one in particular. There are some issues with his understanding of justification. He's got lots of details and rules and some of those things, but you begin to look at his justification, and it is, it's not an orthodox view. Um, but yet we still publish him, and he's a pur Puritan. They're not all all equal, but these Pharisees at this time kind of began to, you know, arise, and the standing that they had became an idol. That's a danger for anyone, especially if you're one who is, is comfortable in prominence, uh, if you're one who maybe, especially if you're more of an extrovert and you appreciate being uh, in a, a center of attention, it can be a, a particular danger for you. Uh, it can be an idol. It can be a danger because of the, the power that maybe someone has, and you begin to not use, here's the difference, having a position that God has given you and using that for His glory is not the same as seeking to place yourself in a particular position so that you can have glory. And that's the, 
distinction that is there. It's, it's not wrong to have money and finances, um, but it can be an idol. It can be a snare, all right? The love of money is a root of all so- kinds of evil, all sorts of evil. That's how you see that communicated in the Scripture. The same thing is true there with positions of prominence and positions of power. It can become a struggle if you're not mindful, if you're not grounded, if you're not remembering where it is that you've come from. If God is not central, if you begin to become central, if your agenda begins to become central and not God's agenda, you begin to be one who's walking in idolatry in this area. Third woe is that of unmarked graves. Third woe is that of unmarked graves. You see that in verse 44 of Luke 11. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. So what happens when you begin to focus on externals over and above the internals? Your religion begins to be a list of rules and a list of requirements without understanding the heart from which even those things come. You become what is known as an unmarked grave. That's not something that immediately might make sense to you, except that graves are kind of gross, right? Graves aren't something that you want to be around or or hang out in. You definitely don't want to build your house over, over a grave. A grave should be marked, all right? It's just, a, it's just, it's just how um, respectfully you would deal with those that are deceased. They're deceased. We recognize them as being made in the image of God. We recognize that there's going to be a resurrection for that reason. In particular, Christian cultures have respected graves. They've respected where people have been, have been buried. Um, just, just go a little bit north of here. It's so fascinating. There, if, I don't know if you've ever gone north of here, on 45, on the east side of the feeder, there is the, the Wunshi Cemetery, and it's a family that was here originally in spring. If you don't know about this, you need to drive north of here right before you get to Cypress Wood, and there is a cemetery that is there. It goes back to late 18, early 1800s um, through even, uh, I think, 1950. Was, 59 was the last time someone was buried there. And there is a family that is buried there and also some other people that are there as well. It's right next to I-45. This was a very serious issue in building this freeway. Uh, the freeway was limited as to how they could build it. Uh, they had to be respectful. And, and, and the fact that this cemetery is right there, I don't know how respectful it is to have a cemetery in the shadow of a freeway, but every day, every time I'm going back home, driving north on 45 at that feeder, there's that cemetery that is sitting there. And this is, this was, this was an issue in particular for um, those at this time, because not just do we need to respect the people that have died, there was a ceremonial uncleanliness for touching a dead body. And they would extend that even to touching the tombs or being involved in this. Gonzales makes this point. He's a, he's a historian, but he says, um, the third world returns the matter to the matter of what is inside and what is outside. Those who come to the Pharisees are unwittingly defiled by the latter's inner corruption, uh, much as an unmarked sepulcher defiles those who walk over it. And that, that's kind of the idea that is here, that there is the, an unmarked grave is something that was a concern for people during this time. In particular, um, in AD 20, Herod Antipas, and I'm quoting this from a commentator, Edwards, replaced, uh, he, he moved the capital of Galilee, all right, and he moved it to the west coast on the Sea of Galilee. It turned out where this capital was going to be, there were tombs that were there. There were unmarked graves that were there, 
and it became uninhabitable for Orthodox Jews. For anyone that was wanting to follow the law, you, you can't, I'm, I'm going to be constantly ceremonially unclean, if, and I don't even know where the tombs are. How is it that I'm going to live and exist in this, this environment? And this is what he's comparing them to. Those that were ceremonially unclean, he's saying, you're actually spiritually unclean. Like, like that which is coming out of you is actually destructive and damaging to other people. R.C. Sproul makes this point. He says, if anything was likely to provoke the wrath of God the most, it was this. The Pharisees were a snare to the people. The people looked to them in matters of religion. They were dependent on them for their growth and knowledge. People assumed their leaders were holy and righteous and that they could trust them. But Jesus likened them to unmarked tombs. All right? He, he describes the Pharisees as whitewashed sepulchers, outside bright and clean, but inside full of dead men's bones. Again, that idea. Imagine they would whitewash tombs so you could see them at this time, but imagine focusing so much on cleansing the outside of the tomb. It, it doesn't really matter that you do that because the decomposing body is within that tomb. One that touches it is going to be ceremonially unclean. That's where Jesus is bringing this home to. Your idea of focusing on all these externals, your idea of, of cleaning the outside of this, of this, of this dish that is dirty inside, that is decomposing inside, but you're meticulously cleaning the outside of this. There's a danger that is there, because imagine this. Imagine that the outside of a dish is clean, all right, and food's been put in it. You're more likely to eat from it. You're more likely to consume that food. You're more likely to be defiled by that than you would be. You're more likely to get sick from it than you would be if the outside was dirty. Imagine someone brought you a bowl of soup and the outside was filthy and disgusting. You wouldn't eat it. What if they said, but the inside's really clean? Well, like, yeah, okay, I don't, I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll start over. Maybe I'll put my own food into a bowl. But imagine the outside was clean and you didn't know the inside was dirty. You didn't know that, that there were pathogens in there that would make you sick from, from eating it. That's the idea spiritually of what is there. Even these that are, are looking very religious, are looking very good. Those that had these, these good ideas, these wise ways in some ways of, of, of following the law, um, it came from a heart that had not been changed. It came from one who was seeing religion merely about the outside and not about the inside. Uh, no amount of cleaning, no amount of outward scrubbing and cleansing is going to change the inside of a person. That comes through faith and repentance. That comes through a changed heart. The person must see their sin. They must see the ways in which they have broken the law of God. They must see the ways in which they are defiled, all right? That, the, that their heart is deceptive above all else. That's what Jeremiah says. That's the way that it's communicated. That's why repentance is so necessary. It's so necessary that we study this in the 1689 this morning. It is so necessary that you see your need to repent. This idea of this metanoia is the word, this idea of a, first and foremost, a change of mindset, that I must see that I am defiled. I must see that within my inner being, even my best actions, my best duties towards God are damaged, are affected by the heart from which they come. I, I gave you the illustration earlier about how the same action could be different, um, you know, righteous or unrighteous from the heart that it comes from. You may go and, and seek to save someone's life, but if you do that, even though that's a good thing, if you do it from an improper motive, it can be sinful. 
You must be changed. You, you must be affected. You, you must be born again that you can walk in righteousness. The inside must be cleansed, and the inside doesn't get cleansed. I'm never going to clean the inside of that dish by cleaning the outside of it. It's never going to go through onto the inside. No, the work must be done on the inside. The work of God must be done within you, and that requires first and foremost that you see the ways in which you have broken God's law, that you see these laws that on your best days you're not keeping them, every word, thought, and deed, and every aspect. You must see that you need of Christ. You must see that Christ has done two things, that He first kept the law in every way. He never sinned. And secondly, He took upon Himself the wrath of God. That is His active and passive obedience. And it is only through you seeing that and turning to Christ and trusting in Him that you can be changed from the inside out, that you can be made a new person, that you can be given life and whereby walk in obedience. It is only there. All of man's religion will emphasize the outside at the exclusion of the inside. It's not that the outside doesn't matter. It's not that we don't think about what we do or how it is that we're doing. I gave you some examples here, and we see even some of these things can be complicated and can be difficult and may need to be worked through and use wisdom at those times. But no amount of outside detailing is going to change what's on the inside. That comes by grace and through faith. That comes by trusting in Christ alone. It comes by repenting of your sin and turning to Christ. And only there can you be saved. Only there you can be given life. Only there can the outside truly be affected because the inside has been changed. Don't leave here trusting in your own religion. Don't leave here trusting in your own efforts. Don't leave here polishing the outside of the cup and excluding that which is inside. Don't leave here comparing yourself with others to make yourself right before God. No amount of comparison will change your standing. No amount of effort on your part will change your standing. It is by grace and through faith, by seeing your need of Christ and turning to Him, and trusting in Him, and He will give you life, and He will give you life abundantly. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You at this time, and we are grateful for the blessing that You share with us in Your Word. We thank You for the wisdom that You have given us within Your Word. We pray that You would bless us in desiring to apply Your Word in all aspects of our existence, but You would bless us in, in having wisdom and how we apply this, and how we apply even what we've, come, what we've concluded for ourselves, applying that into the lives of, of others. Bless us to see, first and foremost, the righteousness of Christ and the need that we have of Christ. To remember from where we have come that we would never think higher of ourselves than we should. Bless us in our ministry to others that it would be primary, that Christ is primary, that Christ would be central that you would be glorified in all that we do, that you would bless us in seeing the idols that exist within our lives, and you would bless us in destroying them and taking them down, that Christ would be king and Christ would rule in all of these areas. I pray this in the name for blessed Lord Christ Jesus. Amen.